Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie K, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, episode titled The Five Orange Pips, where a young gentleman named John Openshaw visits Holmes one night with a strange story. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. Captain. Captain Calhoun. What is it, Mac? Noon sounding, sir. 76 fathoms. Sand shells and hake's teeth. Mm-hmm. Another day or so, we'll raise the lizard. And we're there. It done yet? Just finished. Hell of a quick turnaround this time. Won't give us long. What we do doesn't take long. The Five Orange Pips by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Dramatized for radio by Vincent McInerney. With Clive Madison as Sherlock Holmes and Michael Williams as Dr. John Watson. And featuring Brian Green as Elias Oppenshaw and Angus Wright as John Oppenshaw. The Five Orange Pips. Glancing over my records of the cases handled by my friend Sherlock Holmes between the years 1882 to 1890, I note the year of 87 to be particularly interesting. The adventure of the Paradol Chamber, of the Amateur Mendicant Society, and not least, the Camberwell Poisoning Case, solved by Holmes winding up a watch. But none of these presented such singular features as the strange train of circumstances that began one day towards the end of that September, when, my wife paying an extended visit to Anand, I had taken up again for a short time my old quarters in 221B Baker Street, the equinoctial gales that autumn being exceptionally ferocious. All day the wind had screamed like a banshee while, towards evening, the rain too began to beat against the windows, in a way hardly to be thought of in the heart of this great, hand-hewn city of London. Indeed, what was outside as dusk fell seemed not so much a severe meteorological disturbance as nature's elemental forces shrieking and jeering at mankind through the bars of his civilization and defying both him and all his works. Nor did matters improve as evening deepened into night, for the storm grew even louder, the wind sobbing and crying like a child in the chimney, even disturbing Holmes, who sat moodily at one side of the fireplace, cross-indexing his criminal records. I myself was engaged in reading a fine sea story by Clark Russell, whose text, I must say, seemed to blend with the sound of the gale without, and caused the splash of the rain to lengthen into the long swash of sea waves. When suddenly, into my reverie, I heard, or thought I heard, the far-off reverberation of the doorbell. My heavens, surely that was the bell. Some friend of yours, perhaps? Mm, except for yourself, Watson, I have none, nor do I encourage casual visitors. Perhaps the wind is playing tricks. 
Or has maybe blown up a client? If so, it's a serious case, for nothing less would bring a man out in such weather. However, it is far more likely to be a crony of our landlady. Watson, the lamp onto the visitor's chair, while I get rid of these files. Come in. Mr. Holmes? The unknown caller, who I put at about two and twenty, was well-groomed, trimly clad, and carried both refinement and delicacy in his bearing. He wore a long, shining waterproof and carried a streaming umbrella in one hand, the other holding a gold pince-nez. This he raised to heavy, anxious eyes set in a pale face, and then courteously, yet thoroughly, surveyed the room and all its contents. I fear I owe you an apology, Mr. Holmes, intruding on you on such a night and bringing these traces of the storm and rain into your snug chamber. But my appearing here is the act of a desperate man. A very wet, desperate man. Do come in, I pray you, Mr... Uh, Oppenshaw, John Oppenshaw. Mr. Oppenshaw, and allow me to introduce you to my very good friend and associate, Dr. Watson. Dr. Oppenshaw. To whom I suggest you give your coat and umbrella to be put to dry on the hook, while I prepare something in the nature of a hot cordial over the spirit lamp. You come from the southwest, I see. Uh, Horsham, on the Sussex borders. Yes, the clay and chalk mixture on your toe caps is quite distinctive. Mr. Holmes, I come for advice. That is easily got. And help. Mm, that is not so easy. But I heard from Major Prendergast how you saved him in the Tankerville Club scandal. Ah, yes. That wrongful accusation of cheating, Holmes. That is most incisive. Which echoes Major Prendergast's opinion entirely, who said Mr. Holmes could solve anything. He said too much. I've been beaten four times, three times by men, and once by a woman. Even so, what is that to your successes? Mr. Holmes, what I have here is no ordinary case. None are that come to me. I am the last court of appeal. But now drink this, draw this chair to the fire and give me the initial facts, and afterwards I will question you as to the more important details. Thank you. Well, my name, as I have said, is John Oppenshaw. Although, to begin with, we must go back to my grandfather, who had two sons, my father Joseph and my father's brother, my uncle Elias, men who went different ways. My father opened a small factory in Coventry, Ah. which he enlarged at the invention of bicycling. It was he, in fact, who patented the... The Oppenshaw unbreakable tire. I knew it. The man who advanced the use of the tangent spoke, if I'm not mistaken, and cemented solid India rubber tires into steel fellows. Hmm? Why? I have them fitted to my own machine. <laughs> really, Watson, congratulations, Mr. Oppenshaw. The doctor is right. My father was involved in all of those things, and so successfully that he was able to retire quite early on a handsome competence. Which brings us to your uncle. Yes, A difficult man? Difficult and different. England not being big enough to hold him when young, he emigrated to America. Florida, to be precise. He became a planter and did very well. At the time of the Civil War, he fought for the South, reaching the rank of Colonel under Hood, then retiring back to his plantation when Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse on Palm Sunday of 1865. Though not to stay? No. Unable to stomach the Republicans or their policies, four years later, in 69, he brought his fortune back to England 
buying a small estate in Sussex near Horsham. Mm, where you have journeyed from today. Yes. And a sad and frightening journey it has been. But to return to Elias, when he resettled in England, he did so in a bizarre and willful fashion, never venturing into Horsham itself, taking little exercise, mainly smoking and drinking to excess. It is surprising the opportunity arose for you to meet him at all. Men of your uncle's habits being generally fierce-tempered and solitary by inclination. Family papers needed signing. And as sole heir to the Openshaw name, I suppose, too, he was curious about me. Whatever. In 1878, when I was 12 or so, my father and I were invited, perhaps summoned is a better word, to Horsham, where for the first time I met my uncle Elias. Mr. Joseph Openshaw and Master John Openshaw, sir. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Mary. A tea in 15 minutes for my guests. Yeah, I'll take the usual. Yes, sir. Well, Joseph. Elias, how are you, brother? Prosperous, in good health, and you? Much the same, being able, like yourself, to retire early and devote myself to my work on the mechanics of the bicycle. That's a pleasing prospect, brother. You're slightly overgrown. Your sundial looks interesting. Tudor, perhaps? <laughs> Maybe the boy would like to play out there. Why, yes, Uncle. Thank you. Now, <laughs> skedaddle, son. <laughs> now, you watch that pool near the hedge. It's deep and it's rebound. It's a fine lad, Joseph. So, that's how you made your money, huh? Peddling bicycles. The Openshaw unbreakable tire. Yeah, well, I made mine peddling slaves and guns. Wherever a man's talents lie. <laughs> well, I sure knew where mine did. I tell you, I was a man set fair. Oh, but the South changed. Lincoln, freedom, philanthropists and flag waggers. My flag was blue on red and 13 white stars. The one most of my friends were buried under. That was Sherman. Vandal chief. You know what Sherman did in Carolina. I know that after Lincoln's Freedom Proclamation of 1863, 10,000 citizens of Birmingham sent him a congratulatory message. <laughs> Including your good self, eh? <laughs> My works were at Coventry, brother. Oh, well, that's not so far. All right. Now, we've each shown his colors. I guess there's little chance of an alliance. So let's to business. Business? The boy out there. Your son... John. I'm not sure I follow. You know, I'm a rich man, Joseph. A rich man without an heir. Ah. But blood is blood. Now, you mind if we discuss him a little, brother? He is your nephew. He sure is. He, uh, he goes to school. Where we live is rather remote, so he has a tutor. Oh. And play? Cricket? Rugger? Rowan? All of that? He tends to find his own. Swimming in summer in the stream, skating in season. Sometimes, I believe, he plays at indoor games with Cook. Oh? Backgammon, drafts and the like. Now, Brother Joseph, I have a proposition. As I remarked, I'm a rich man. A rich man who lives alone. Now, your son also seems to live mainly alone. I object to that, Elias. I may not be able to devote all the time I might like to the boy, but... But I can. Oh, sure, now he can have his tutors... But I'm the one he'll really learn off and inherit my fortune if he comes up to scratch. Now, what do you say? It's a generous offer. <laughs> More than generous. 
and with distinct possibilities of widening John's horizons. But such a decision, such a very large decision, must be his alone. Well, then let's consult the oracle. So call him in, brother. Call him in and we'll listen to him settle his fate and his estate. You elected to remain, of course. And never regretted it. Singular, yes. Fierce and quick-tempered. Foul-mouthed when angry. A drunkard. But before I was 16, I commanded both my uncle's household and his financial affairs. Mm, an education indeed. I could never be what he wanted, of course. These hands could never swing a saber, nor this mouth command his strange oaths, nor my belly contain the varieties and amounts of liquor he drank. But even so, we understood each other. We liked each other. Even loved each other in our own ways. And it was to me he trusted the keys of every room and cabinet. Except one, I think. Now I see why Major Prendergast set me in your direction, Mr. Holmes. A man like your uncle would have secrets, could hardly escape them. They would be hidden away somewhere in his house, I am right. A room among the attics. Invariably locked and nothing to be seen through the keyhole but old trunks and bundles. Locked doors are not. Secrets have a nasty habit of coming to light. As did those of my uncle. Well, Mr. Holmes, I think I must push back the chair, if I may. Your fire has destroyed all memory of the storm except its noise. Listen to that wind, gentlemen. Oh, it would be a mariner tonight, I wonder. Outlying on an icy yard above the seething ocean. Poor souls. To have to earn a crust thus in such weather. Mr. Oppenshaw, Dr. Watson. It all really began one morning in 1883, five years after I had come to him. I had gone down to breakfast and just ordered some kedgeri from Mary when I noticed something laying on the table in front of my uncle's plate. Something exceedingly unusual. Mary? Yes, sir? What's this? Why, it's a letter, Master John. Yes, but my uncle doesn't get letters. His bills are paid in cash. He has no acquaintances. Um, morning. Harry, lots of coffee. You were uh, fixed for lawyer Fordham to come today, John. Bringing the papers directly after breakfast, Uncle. <laughs> Which means two breakfast. <laughs> Save him the expense of his own. Yeah, when, when did this come? First post, sir. I didn't want to disturb you. Sure. Pondicherry postmark. India, eh, John? East coast, I believe, Uncle. <coughs> South of Madras. Strong French connections. Oh, missionaries, I bet. Looking for contributions. Lawyers and missionaries. And all in one day. I wonder where they got my name. Oh, open it, will you, John? Mary, where's that coffee? Well, was all right? Hmm? An appeal to convert and feed the Hindu, huh? Well, well, come on, boy. I rather think it's a joke, Uncle. Joke? What sort of joke? Well, just that all that is in the envelope is... Well, look. Five pips. And on the envelope flap, the letters K... <laughs> they found me. Uncle. My sins have overtaken me. Mary, a cloth from the kitchen. Yes, sir. Uncle, what is it? What on earth does it mean? The pips, the letters. What do they mean? Why? Mr. Fordham, sir. Good morning, Colonel, and to you, John. Ah, oh, nothing like a brisk canter to give a man an appetite. I say, what have we here? Compote of fruit, kippers, kedgeree. 
<laughs> so all that's wanted is a plate. Mary! Mary! Never mind a damn twaddle. Go to the kitchen. Bank up the fire now. Yes, sir. Fordham, for once, forget your stomach and earn your money. I say, Openshaw. Go to town immediately. You understand me? Why? I draw had... my will. Everything is to pass to John's father initially. That is my brother Joseph. And after him, John here. Are you savvy? Uh, but this is a little precipitate. No, sorry. Fordham, this is what I want. Now, do you understand? Well, as you put it like I'll that... to daddle and get yourself busy and get back here to have it witnessed. Now go! Give the job to a faster man. Very well, Colonel. John. I'm off to the kitchen. You go to the locked room. I, I, I know you're not supposed to know about it. Here's the key. Now, I want you to bring down the brass box. There's only one. Hurry, John. Hurry. There's lots to do. Uncle, the five pips. You were going to tell me what they mean. They mean death, John. That's what they mean. And did they mean death, Mr. Openshaw? As requested, I brought the brass box to the kitchen. My uncle opened it with a key kept on his person, and then proceeded to burn the contents, excepting one leaf of paper which fell, only charred, onto the hearth. Ah, you have it? Here, Mr. Holmes. Something, I know not what, told me to retrieve it without his knife. Hmm, most interesting. But I shall need my lens on my table, if you would, Watson. Of course, Holmes. And shortly after this ritual burning, Fordham returned with the will which was witness to the effect that in the event of my uncle Elias's death, the estate would revert to my father and then to me. After which, I assume, his behaviour deteriorated rapidly. Uh, totally. He began drinking continually, would see no one at all, roamed the house with his gun at all hours, suddenly unlocking the doors and rushing out in the night to check noises he heard outside, taps that had come at his window. Oh, poor devil. And the end? Well, a night when he made yet another drunken sally outside yelling and cursing about those who are out to get him. He was found next morning face down in a little green scummed pool at the bottom of the garden. And the coroner's verdict? Suicide. Suicide? What else, given the circumstances? Yet no man had a stronger grasp on life than my uncle. However, my father and I simply entered into possession of the estate and £14,000 at the bank. Remarkable. Truly remarkable. Now, Mr. Oppenshaw, let me have two dates, will you? Uh, Watson, make a note, if you will. Certainly. First, the exact date of the letter containing the five pips, and then that of your uncle's suicide. March the 10th, 1893, he received the letter. May the 2nd, 1893, his body was found. Exactly seven weeks later. And a Pondicherry postmark. I wonder. Uh, perhaps it is yet too early. Pray proceed, Mr. Robinshaw. So my father and I moved into the property, and in the attic room discovered that same brass box, inside the lid of which was pasted a label with those same initials that were on the envelope. Mr. Robinshaw, what exactly were these initials? Why, KKK. Ah. And some words, you say? Uh, simply letters, memoranda, receipts, and a register. That is the nature of the papers that your uncle destroyed. It would appear so. And which same papers I tried to convince my father were directly responsible for my uncle's death. A suggestion he laughed away, saying the letter was a prank or warning from a firm of Florida orange growers my uncle had had business with in the past, and whose initials were KKK. Business, my father hinted, that may have involved perhaps some sort of financial irregularities. And your father maintained this reading of the situation? Unswervingly. Even when the second letter arrived, addressed to him. Some more coffee, my boy. Father, I implore you to listen. I firmly believe the first letter to Uncle Elias was both a warning and a statement of intent. I believe this one to you is also a warning, plus a request... A request of which you must take notice. To put on the sundial papers that no longer exist, that Elias burnt, I do not see how I can help the anonymous writer of this note. 
I do not even see how I can help myself to marmalade at this moment. It appears to be missing from the table. Although, should the writer call in person, I will gladly talk to him about it. From Dundee, was it? Well, Dundee is a long way. So is Pondicherry. John, I really see no use in pursuing this line again. Elias's death was self-inflicted in more ways than one. Mm. I don't know about you, my boy, but I find this toast rather... rather crusty this morning. At least let me contact the authorities on your behalf. To lay what before them? My father's safety. Oh, very well. You recall Major Freebody, who commands the forts on Portsdown Hill, and who is continually inviting me over there to look at some lighting apparatus he has evolved, which he hopes to fit one day to his bicycle, though mark my words. It is the likes of Freebody who will have these wonderful machines of ours subject to acts of Parliament before he's finished. Father... However, to calm your fears and satisfy his self-aggrandizement, I suppose for a few days, certainly no more than a week... How will that suit you? I could hardly speak, so relieved was I at my father's decision. As I imagined, the further he was from home, the further from danger. Then, on the second day, I received a telegram to contact the Major. My father, having apparently missed his way the previous twilight, had been found at the bottom of one of many deep chalk pits in the area. Nothing missing, no signs of violence death from accidental causes. Sympathies, uh, Mr. Robinshaw. Thank you, gentlemen. But that was nearly three years ago, and not directly what brings me here today. Then what does, Mr. Robinshaw? These. Which arrived in a letter yesterday morning, and this time addressed to me. Good Lord. And the postmark? London, Eastern Division. Ah, the message? To put the papers on the sundial and signed with three Ks. And what have you done? Nothing. Nothing? Well, to tell the truth, gentlemen, my first feeling was one of complete helplessness, like a rabbit transfixed by a snake. I seemed to be in the grip of some relentless, inexorable evil. Well, then I thought of my uncle's fighting spirit and decided I'd make a stand. Good man. And so went to the police, who listened with a smile. But my standing and my dreadful earnestness eventually persuaded them to allot me a man. Who is where? Horsham. His orders are to stay in the house. But why did you not come to me at once? I did not know who to turn to. This morning, however, I decided as a gesture to come to town, which is how I met Prendergast, who directed me to you. And well he did so. But you've left it late. Very late, however. So, first the paper. Watson, Mm -hmm. the lamp directly overhead, if you will. Yes, these charred edges make it difficult. It's, uh, yes, March 1869. Fourth Hudson came, same old platform. Seventh set the pips on Macaulay, Sw- Swain and Paramore of St. Augustine. Ninth Macaulay cl- cleared, cleared. Uh, tenth John Swain cleared. Twelfth uh, visited Paramore all all well, uh, which I think is all we'll get. Now, this is your uncle's hand, Mr. Robinshaw, on this scrap. Without doubt. 
What do you think, Mr. Holmes? That you return home immediately and put this remnant in the brass box, plus another note signed by yourself explaining the burning of the other papers. You must write this in a way that will carry conviction and put the box on the sundial as instructed. And this will satisfy them? I think it may deter them to give us extra time to discover their identities and invoke the law. You can really do this. If Holmes cannot help you, Mr. Openshaw, no one can. Then I will return immediately. Here. Let me help you with your coat. If the sound of the wind is anything to go by, you will still need it. You'll go back by a train from Waterloo. Thank you. Yes, there is one at 9.30. Then you must hurry, Mr. Robinshaw. We'll take a cab, of course. If there is one available in such weather. Even so, I am armed. One of my uncle's many pistols. <laughs> Not that I'm sure how to use it. The threat is often enough. Good, then set off, but take care. For you are in real and imminent danger. And tomorrow I will work upon your case. In Horsham? In London, Mr. Robinshaw, for that is where the answer lies. London, Eastern Division. I saw Oppenshaw downstairs and opened the front door. A cloak of wind swept past me with a howl and up the stairs. Watching Oppenshaw being buffeted down Baker Street, searching vainly for a cab, I thought of homes warm and dry upstairs in our cosy rooms, already in an introspective silence in front of the red glow of the fire, his pipe alight, watching the wraiths of smoke chase each other towards the ceiling like strands of seaweed being fantastically wound in the middle of great green waves. Then... Here, Watson, you're waterproof. Uh, you must follow until he finds a hansom, even to the railway station itself. For it seems to me he walks in more perils than even the Sholtos did in the sign of the four. Quickly! He's near the corner. But what are these perils? Who's behind all this? You have some idea? Indeed, but I can do no more until it's light. Until, in fact, the public libraries reopen in the morning. Should there be any doors left on them to open. Ah, he turns into Oxford Street. You can tell me nothing? You remember, Doctor, in the early days of our friendship, how you once defined my limitations? Indeed. Philosophy, astronomy and politics zero. Botany variable. Geology profound. As regards mudstains from any region within 50 miles of London. Chemistry, eccentric. Anatomy, unsystematic. Sensational literature, crime records, unique. Then, violinist, boxer, swordsman, lawyer, and self-poisoner by cocaine and tobacco. Uh, anatomy, unsystematic. Well, Doctor, what can you tell me about Cuvier's feather or bone, as some refer to it? Oh, I'm not sure I can tell you anything. Although I seem to have heard, when a student... Cuvier was a French comparative anatomist whose great coup de théâtre was to take a fossilised feather that had been found belonging to no known species of bird and from it adduce the shape of the bird's wing. From the wing of the body, from the body of the head, from the head... Well, needless to say, Cuvier prophesied what the whole creature would look like should one ever be found. And when one was... Remarkable. What is now, Cuvier? if our feather is what drove Colonel Oppenshaw from the, the charming climate of Florida and all his American friends and contacts, for the life of a, a semi-recluse in an English provincial town, I think we may adduce fear. But fear of what? Oh, I, um... Ah, ah, Oxford Street. Ah, there he goes. Now keep close to the shops, should he glance back. Holmes, fear of what? Uh, this we learn from the letters. You recall again their postmarks. Mm -hmm. Pondicherry, Dundee, London. That is East London. From which we deduce whole seaports. Excellent, my dear Watson. So there can be no doubt that the writer of them is on a ship. So let us look further. In the case of Pondicherry, seven weeks elapsed between the threat contained in the letter and the threat's fulfilment in Dundee. It was three or four days. So those involved had a greater distance to travel. But then the letter surely had the same distance to come and therefore should have arrived 
arrive with the sender, should it not? What on earth are you driving at? That from the information we hold, we can adduce the sort of ship, a sailing ship. It looks as if the malefactors in this matter always send their singular warning to their intended victim before beginning their mission. I believe they sent their first letter by steam mail packet from Pondicherry, arriving themselves seven weeks later on a sailing ship. Much less reliable, usually very much slower. Of course. This would explain why the second letter from Dundee arrived three days before they did, the time it took them to sail round the coast, their letter coming overland. <laughs> the third letter, though, comes from London, Eastern Division, that is, the East India Dock. My God! They're already here! Oh, which is exactly why we are dogging John Oppenshaw's footsteps on such a night. Holmes, who is it we're looking for? What do they want? How will you find them? Ah, at last. Hmm? Strange tableau. Just one cab in an almost deserted Oxford Street. When you consider the carts jamming the middle of this thoroughfare during the day. <laughs> Every day. And always in the middle. That, Watson, is because the camber of the road is an added hazard to already overburdened horses. Ah, he's safely inside. So, let us lay off a course for Baker Street with all possible dispatch. You want to know the who and why as regards John Oppenshaw? Mm -hmm. Well, after a, a small restorative, I shall do my very best to enlighten you. We shall be home, I trust, before Mr. Oppenshaw even steps aboard his train. It's, uh, it's along here. A, a barge called Betsy. <clears throat> my mate will let me lie up there till my ankle's healed. Oh! You must keep it off the ground. Put your arm more round my shoulder. Where is this boat? It is essential I catch the 9.30 train from the station. It's so dark under here. Oh, there it is, Mr. Oppenshaw. Just at the end of that small jetty. On the river itself. Something wrong? You called me Mr. Oppenshaw. So I did. But that doesn't matter now, does it? Here you are, Doctor. Ah, While I put this towel to use, uh, oblige me by handing down the letter K of the American Encyclopedia from the bookshelf, would you? Mm. You see, one person couldn't possibly have carried out the two murders. They were simply too well planned and executed. Offenshaw's uncle Elias was a strong, capable, determined fighter. Subdue him and hold his head under in a pond would require two, maybe three, equally determined men. The sort of men who battle daily with the sort of weather we are now experiencing outside, and for whom a fall into the raging ocean and loss of life itself is simply another part of the daily round. Ah, oh, thank you. And so, to continue my uh, Cuvier analogy, we are therefore not looking for one person, but a group of people. And in this way, KKK becomes the badge of a society, rather than that of an individual. Of the Ku Klux Klan, in fact. Never heard of it. So... Uh, ah, here it is. Ku Klux Klan. A name derived from the fanciful resemblance to the sound produced by cocking a rifle. Hmm. Terrible secret society formed by ex-Confederate soldiers in southern states, notably Tennessee, Louisiana, Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, 
terrorizing of Negro voters, murdering and driving from country, those opposed to its views. Outrages usually preceded by warnings sent to marked man by a fantastic but generally recognized shape, sprig of oak, melon seeds, or orange pips. Yes, in spite of best efforts in the United States government, movement flourished until eventually 1869, movement seemed rather suddenly to collapse. The time Elias came back to England. Bringing with him the papers. Papers, I suspect, that would perhaps now incriminate some of the first men of the South. Yes, now consider again the leaf that fell from the fire. Mm -hmm. Sent the pips to A, B, C, A and B, leaving the country, C being visited with, I fear, a sinister result. Now this was evidence to be destroyed or suppressed at any cost. A task given to the men from the ship. But the papers are no more, and Elias dead. There is now no more danger to anyone involved in this society. Well, the pursuers are not to know this, at least not until tomorrow when they find John Openshaw's note. Hmm? Will they believe it? I have no idea. You see, I think the men questioned Elias before drowning him, but would have had no means of deciding the truth, because Elias would have claimed all the papers burned, but had nothing to show them one way or the other. But with the proof now of the charge sheet... Would they not have searched the house after killing Elias? No, they, they, would, uh, they would have expected Elias to live alone. Given his character, would not have allowed for his nephew being there, and secrecy is essential to the aims of their society. And once Elias was dead, of course, only the papers could then incriminate the principals. Indeed. So they threatened John's father, Joseph, for them. A stubborn man, he refused to make known what he knew, which cost him his life. But, as it said in the encyclopedia, they exist through fear. And will now hope to have scared off and sure to the point where he'll give them anything he has. What devils. What do you intend to do? Uh, deliver them to the law. But how? When you've no idea where they are? And there are a thousand ships in the East India docks. Well, that is tomorrow. For tonight, hand me my violin, and we'll try to forget for half an hour the miserable weather outside and still more miserable ways of our fellow men. The next morning the weather had cleared and the sun was again weakly shining. Holmes arose early and in a positive fever of impatience, refusing one of Mrs Hudson's stout bachelor breakfasts, refusing to glance at the morning papers, departing with hardly a goodbye. Left alone, I began to turn over those same papers, at first indiscriminately, then with a heavy heart. The morning wore slowly into midday and then into afternoon, but still there was no sign of Holmes. Finally, tired from my own inaction, sick with a sense of failure, weary from good motives turned by chance to bad deeds, I lay on the couch to rest. And while lying there, ran again over the fantastical story told to us by John Oppenshaw, amused on his life with his uncle, the sensitive, timid boy and his immersion into the end of a very deep pool. His relationship with Elias and where it eventually brought him. Evening began to close in, fantasy to merge with fact as the long day waned. I half dreamt the bell had rung, and Oppenshaw was again mounting the stairs for the first time, that we would be given another chance. That... Ah, Watson! Success, I think. Up yet, get and listen to this. Holmes. 
Have you seen that? Later, my dear fellow. Lord, I'm hungry. Nothing all day. Let me get myself some roast beef. There's a good fellow. Holmes. Yeah, some mustard. Watson, I know who they are. The murderers. Their names, where they're from, where they're going, everything. Ah, that's quiet, isn't you? <laughs> uh, let me explain. Now, first I went to the library for the old shipping papers and checked all the vessels in Pondicherry around January and February of 83, then all the vessels in Dundee, January 85, finally all the vessels in East India docks up until yesterday, which led me, by a process of elimination, to a sailing ship, the Lone Star, the name of one of the states of the Union. Texas. Indeed. Proof in itself, almost. Then to Roy's to see my old friend Captain Standish. You remember the case of the singular stowaway? Of course you do. Standish looked through the lists and found the details. Lone Star, home port, Savannah. Captain James Cahoon, agents near the Albert Dock. At the agents, I inquired about a passage to America, citing reports of Captain Cahoon's seamanship as my reason for choosing the ship. By this ruse, I learned Cahoon and his first and second mates, McGregor and Carver, were the only Americans aboard, the rest being Finns and Germans. That Cahoon was sometimes inclined take a passenger or two, but not this time, the Lone Star having cleared early this morning for Savannah. I realised immediately that Cahoon and his associates must have collected the paper from the sundial late last night prior to sailing this morning. Well, they may have their scrap of burned paper, but I have their names and all other details, which will be forwarded to the proper authorities, though not until I have bathed and rested. And after... Why, perhaps a trip to Horsham to acquaint John Oppenshaw with the solution to his problem. What do you say, old fellow? I'm afraid it would be a wasted journey, Holmes. Here. The heading is Tragedy near Waterloo Bridge. Hmm? Uh, between nine and ten last night, Constable Cook of H Division, faint cry for help, splash. What with wind and rain, impossible to effect rescue. Body eventually re Recovered by water, please. From envelope in pocket, John Offenshaw. Conjectured deceased, hurrying to catch last train from Waterloo Station. Tripped over small boats, landing jetty, no doubt victim of unfortunate accident. Only hope this will call attention of authorities to deplorable general condition of riverside landing stages. <laughs> what was he doing on the embankment at all? The cabby should have taken him directly to... Oh, let me look again. Uh, when interviewed, the handsome cab driver said his horse was of a nervous disposition in high wind and that he was therefore loath to take the animal onto the exposed bridge and so dropped his fare at the Aldwych end near the Strand. Oh, well, of course, one of them would have been waiting for him, just as another would be on the train, just as the third would have been at Horsham. Cahoon, McGregor, Carver, each commanding his own piece of ground. Oh, how easy we made it for them. Holmes, you must not blame yourself. You really have no cause The worst to. thing, Watson, is that it hurts my pride. Now, considering Offenshaw is dead and that I sent him to his death, God knows her pride is the last thing I should be feeling, and that he should come to me for help. The devils. I did not look far enough. Devils. Devils. <laughs> but he shall not remain unavenged. Watson, an orange from that cupboard. Hmm? You are, but thank what you. One, two, three, four, five. Envelope, pen, and address to Captain James Cahoon, Bark, Lone Star, Savannah, Georgia. 
to go by mail boat and be waiting for our friend Captain Cahoon when he arrives. It'll give him a sleepless night when he will feel something of what John Ottenshaw felt, and I will ensure the police will wait on him the next day. You see, they gave him a day to put the papers on the sundial, as they had only until the next morning before they left. When he did not comply, they killed him, assuming that with the last of the Oppenshaws dead, their secret would be safe. Well, I will put a pack of dogs on them they will not shake off, no matter how fast and hard they settle. It may not come to that. Have a look here. This report concerning the weather. How the storm that has just passed over London is now expected to move out to sea, heading for the Goodwins and the Isle of Wight. Yes. They may not be too far from there at this moment. I wonder, Watson, if this time a higher authority has not intervened to exact a most ultimate justice. If so, it is a salutary lesson. Not least to me. And so, we think it transpired. For the Lone Star never made port. And, for all we know, Holmes's letter, with its dried-up orange pips, still lies yellowing in an agent's office in Savannah. Some long time later, Holmes again had occasion to meet Captain Standish of Lloyd's on another matter. And, not unnaturally, the name of the Lone Star eventually came up between them. After a moment's pause, Standish mentioned how, months before, the skipper of a packet for Boston had claimed, far out in the Atlantic, to have seen a shattered sternpost swinging in the trough of a wave. The man had immediately called for his glass and turned it upon the splintered remnant of wood moving to and fro in the water. The carved letters it bore, he claimed, were simply L. And that is all we ever knew concerning the fate of the Lone Star. In The Five Orange Pips, Sherlock Holmes was played by Clive Medicine and Dr. Watson by Michael Williams. Elias Oppenshaw was played by Brian Green and John Oppenshaw by Angus Wright. With Daniel Allen as Mary the Maid, Michael Turner as Joseph Oppenshaw and Captain Calhoun, and Brett Usher as Fordham and McGregor. The violinist was Leonard Friedman. The Five Orange Pips was dramatized for radio by Vincent McInerney and directed by Patrick Rayner.
has been a Nostalgic Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.